Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's surprising because, I mean, you can't expect a janitor to be into his work, you know, but they accept it and they and they do their job. And I've always thought of journalists as people who had to have had a passion about what they're writing about in the first place before they became journalists, you know. You know, I almost feel like people don't believe me, like I, I'm a pathological liar at times, you know, because I'm constantly defending myself, you know. I mean, people still I haven't evolved enough to question anything that's this printed you know even I'm you know I'm I'm really bad at that too I, I believe a lot of things that I read I've never really known my my ancestry I didn't even know until this year that, that the name Cobain was Irish huh? I found out um, through looking through the phone books, through different phone books throughout, throughout America, I found this one lady in San Francisco, and she had been uh, researching our, our family history. And we came from County Cork, which is really a weird coincidence because when we toured Ireland, uh, we played in, in Cork, and the entire day I walked around in a daze. I never felt more spiritual in my life it was the weirdest feeling and i and I, I was almost in tears the whole day it was the weirdest thing since that tour which was about two years ago i kind of sensed that i was from ireland did you have um, problems in high school did what people uh, you? i was a scapegoat but not not how a person would be picked on all the time yeah. people didn't really pick on me and beat me up um, because I was so withdrawn by that time and I was so antisocial that I was almost insane. You know, I felt so different and so crazy that people just left me alone. Because I couldn't find any friends, male friends, yeah. that, I, that I felt compatible yeah. with, I ended up hanging out with girls a lot. Yeah. And I just always felt that they weren't treated equally and, yeah. and uh, they weren't treated with respect, especially because of you know, the way that um, Aberdeen treated women. I mean, just in general, you know, women are totally oppressed in small towns like that and all over America. You know, it took me many years after the fact of realizing that that's, those were the things that were bothering me. And I was just starting to understand what really was making 
I'm pissing me off so much. Although I listened to Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin, and I really did enjoy, and I still do enjoy some of the melodies that they've written, some of the songs, but they're definitely lacking something. And it took me so many years to realize that it was just, you know, a lot of it had to do with sexism, and and that stuff bored me. It it gives me a a small thrill to know that I've helped in in a a small way to get rid of those people, or to at least maybe make them think about what they've done for the last 10 years. Do you have problems with people thinking that you were gay? Yeah. Yeah, I even thought that I was gay. I thought that might be the solution to my problem at one time during high school, during my high school years. Although I never experimented with it, I had a gay friend. And actually that was the only time that I ever experienced real um, confrontation from people. Because for so many years, you know, like I said, they were afraid of me basically. And when I started hanging out with this person who, who was known to be gay, I, I started getting a lot of shit and people threatening to beat me up and stuff. And then my mother wouldn't allow me to be friends with him anymore. And it was real devastating because finally I found a male friend who I actually hugged and was affectionate to. And, and we talked about a lot of things. And I was just starting to, you know, at that time, you know, I was putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And he played a big role in that. It seems to me that going back to the thing about um, gay politics, it is one of the things that makes you very different to a lot of other groups, because you still don't get many groups in the mainstream talking about that stuff or admitting it. Seems to be getting better though. Now that alternative music is finally being accepted, although it's in a pretty sad form as far as I'm concerned, but at least the consciousness is there. And that's really healthy for the younger generation. What what broke first was never mind or team spirit. When it started to break, whatever whatever broke first. Um, I don't know because we were on tour in Europe, and it didn't affect me until you know probably three months after we'd already been famous in America. Was there one moment when you suddenly walked into it or suddenly realized? Yeah, when I got home, a friend of mine made a compilation of all of all the news stories about our band that, that was played on MTV and on, yeah. on the local um, news programs and stuff. It was frightening. <laughs> it just scared me. Well, and what about the media? Did you find it incredibly disheartening that you started this group and you were playing these songs, good songs, you've become incredibly successful and suddenly all this weird stuff on. Oh yeah, it affected me to the point of wanting to break up the band all the time. I've, I've never paid attention to mainstream press and media before, so I've never been aware of people being attacked you know, and crucified on that level. And I can't help but feel that we've been scapegoated in a way, you know? I feel I have a lot of animosity towards journalists and press in general, you know? But because it's happening to me, of course, I'm probably exaggerating it, but I still can't see 
I can't think of another example of, of any current band that's been that, that has had more um, negative articles written about them. A lot of it is just simple sexism. Yeah. They, Courtney is my wife, and people could not accept the fact that I'm in love, you yeah. know, and that I could be happy, you know. Yeah. And because she's such a powerful person and such a threatening person, mm-hmm. that every sexist within the industry just joined forces and decided to, well, to like string it. us up. I'm not going to let a rock band or a handful of evil journalists to you know, dictate my fucking life. What advice would you give to someone who's just starting out or wants to have a musical career? Just keep practicing and don't give up. Just never give up. Play as often as you can and be really dedicated and try to write good music and don't worry about um, the material ethics that go with music. It, it doesn't matter what you look like or, or anything. It doesn't matter what your product looks like. It's what, what it sounds like. There's not many people that have lived a life as full as Johnny Cash. Through the course of his life, he created countless hits, received numerous awards and inductions, overcame drug and alcohol addictions, was arrested seven times and left a legacy as one of the greatest country artists to ever walk the earth. He went from humble beginnings at his family's farm in Arkansas to the highest possible peak of stardom. But what is it that we all love so much about Johnny Cash? Is it his relatable lyrics, his mesmerizing voice, or his sincere originality? Perhaps his interpretation of his own success will help us answer those questions. Johnny? Yes, what do you think is the Johnny Cash appeal to the public, which is so strong right now? I really can't answer that question. I do know what I do, though, and I really think I know who I am. And um, if there's appeal there, I think it might be through sincerity and honesty, because I do what I enjoy doing, and you know, and I love my work, and the people can sense that. If you don't enjoy your singing or even making your records. The people that buy the records can sense that. And I think it's sincerity of delivery that the people recognize. You can't fool the people. You know, if you put out a record they don't like, they're going to throw it right back at you. And you deserve it because you're making it for them. And you have to, you have to love what you're doing, and you have to show that love in your work. Throughout his career, Cash spent years on and off drugs, from using to sober and back again many times. He explains what started his addiction, as well as the faith and relationships that got him through. First of all, what caused that period of depression? You were on your way up, you were successful, mm-hmm. things were going pretty good for you. It didn't begin as a period of depression. You know, I was a, I was a Christian from the time I was 12 years old, and I grew up in a church, and then I got into the Air Force and into the music business, and then I got away from it. I got to traveling, I got, you know, I stopped going to church, and then uh, on some of the first long tours we had, somebody introduced me to amphetamines. <clears throat> he said, you're tired, this will make you feel good. And he was right, it did, it felt so good. And I took them for a while, I'd take them before every show, and, I, and I'd, I'd search my conscience. And there was a demon called deception that made me believe, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because I'd, I'd ask myself, how could anything that feels so good be so wrong? 
You know, so I kept it up. And I would have argued with anybody that tried to tell me that it was bad for me. Now, this was in 59, and a lot of doctors didn't know what amphetamines were, would do to people. So I got, I got hooked on it. I got taking amphetamines to the point of where I couldn't rest at night, you know. So then I got to taking tranquilizers. And then I started to see into what I was really doing to myself. And then the depression set in when I realized that they had control. And pray as hard as I try, I could never... I could never reach out of it and find that strength, you know, that I'd had all my life until I'd had all these series of arrests and car wrecks and uh, hospitalizations and different hospitals and, and halfway quitting the habit, but I'd get out there and be my old friends with the pills again, you know, so I'd go right back to it until finally in 67, I, I realized that, that this is it. I was down to 154 pounds and I'm 6'2" and I knew I was dying. And uh, there was that warm, still presence of God there behind me telling me that if I didn't, that I was gone, you know. So with the help of June Carter and some other good friends uh, helping us and standing by us and living with me out there at my house, overcame the drug habit. It was really, it was tough. Looking back at Johnny's life, he's persevered through trying times. His story is marred by countless times that he fell down and got back up again. It's no surprise that his life philosophy is to never give up. To lots of people, this may sound like a cliche thing to say, but perhaps Cash would have never achieved the greatness he did without keeping these three words so near and dear to his heart. The first time I knew what I wanted to do with my life was when I was about four years old. I was listening to an old Victrola playing a railroad song. The song was called Hobo Bill's Last Ride. And I thought that was the most wonderful, amazing thing that I'd ever seen, that you could take this piece of wax and music would come out of that box. From that day on, I wanted to sing on the radio. And uh, I grew up in the 40s, and I heard all these great speeches like Winston Churchill. His uh, most famous or infamous commencement exercise speech was one that consisted of seven words. He stood before this graduating class and said, never, 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 never give up. And then somebody else said, every day in every way I'm getting better and better. I didn't especially believe that about myself, but I said it every day and I made myself believe it and it worked. I persevered. I never gave up my dream to, quote, sing on the radio. I read a book when I was about 12 years old about an Indian named Lone Bull. Lone Bull was going to be a hero and kill a buffalo and bring it back to the village so his family and the other people could have meat. Uh, the elders of the, of the village knew about the buffalo herd out there. They knew it was there. And they were making plans to cut into the herd and cut off some buffalo and kill them and have meat for the whole winter and into the next spring. Lone Bull wanted to be a hero. He went out with his bow and arrow and killed a calf and ran the herd off into the next state or whatever. He drug his, his calf home. His family was fed, but they were ostracized from the village. They had to leave the village. And um, Lone Bull became a wanderer until he found a village that would take him in. In that next village that he was taken in, he organized the buffalo hunt that winter and he had more meat than this village had ever had before. 
So I learned from my mistakes. It's a very painful way to learn, but without pain, the old saying is, there's no gain. And I found that to be true in my life. You miss a lot of opportunities by making mistakes. But that's part of it, is knowing that you're not shut out forever and that there's a goal there that you still can reach. So, uh, Lone Bull's philosophy was, I'm kicked out of this village, but I will grow up and I'll come into another one and I will do what I set out to do, and that was feed the people. You build on failure. You use it as a stepping stone. Uh, you know, close the door on, on the past. You don't try to forget the mistakes, but you don't dwell on it. You don't let it have any of your energy or any of your time or any of your space. You know, you analyze it as you're moving forward and uh, never fall in the same trap twice, which uh, I can't say that I haven't been guilty of doing. But my advice is don't. If they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> but the first thing is to know what you want to do. Set that goal out there and never lose sight of it and work toward it. And know that there are going to be byways and sidetracks. But keep persevering and keep on and do what you know that you want to do. And uh, meditate on. A person knows when it just seems to feel right to them, something they want to do. Feelings still got a lot to do with it. Lots of people would consider Johnny Cash one of the greatest songwriters of all time. But where is it he gets the inspiration from? Uh, songwriting is a very strange thing, so far as I'm concerned. It's not something that I can say, next Tuesday morning I'm going to sit down and write songs. I can't do that. can't, no way. If I say I'm going to the country and take a walk in the woods next Tuesday, then the probability is next Tuesday night I might can write a song. Creative people have to be fed from the divine source. I do. I have to get fed. I have to get filled up in order to pour out. Really have to. A Johnny Cash lyric that sticks out is, I were black for those who never read or listen to the words that Jesus said about the road to happiness through love and charity. Johnny credits a large amount of his perseverance and success to his religious beliefs. He even dedicated the 1975 book, Man in Black, to his wife's father who helped shape his love for the Bible. I wrote a book called Man in Black and in the foreword of that book I said this book is dedicated to E.J. Carter, that's my wife's father, who taught me to love the Word. He was a theologian and he got me into uh, Bible history and uh, the Bible commentaries. And uh, I discovered the joy of discovering spiritual truths. And the Bible is the source of the greatest joy of that. It's a great moral stabilizer in a, in a world run amok. And it's an anchor for my own conscience and my own mind and for my own life. It keeps my feet on the ground. It gives you the answer to every problem you're facing if you, if you look for it. Years later, he was diagnosed with neurodegenerative disease. Although Cash didn't let that turn his heart cold, he remained in high spirits for the remainder of his life and stayed true to his philosophy of never giving up. Are you bitter? Bitter? Yeah, angry. No. I mean, you know, you're a young guy, you're only 70. No, I'm not bitter. Why should I be bitter? I'm thrilled to death with life. The way God has given it to me is just a platter, a golden platter of life laid out there for me. It's been beautiful. I've been with you many times, Larry, and it's all been uphill. Every time you remember? Yeah. Yeah, things have been good, and things get better all the time. 
I'm the last one that would be angry at God. Well, how do you how do you look at tomorrow? Well, Larry, you can ask the people around me. I I don't um, I don't give up, and it's not out of frustration and desperation that I say I don't give up. I don't give up because I don't give up. I I don't believe in it. I it's like my father. So when you go to the cotton fields, if you're supposed to give the man 10 hours for five dollars a day, give him 10 hours and a half. I still try to do that, you know. When I, if my session is supposed to be a three-hour session, I'll try to do four or five hours uh, of work because I love my work. So long as I can work, I'm going to work. In May 2003, his wife June Carter Cash passed away due to complications following her heart valve replacement surgery. Most people would spend months mourning. But most people aren't Johnny Cash. Just three days after his wife's funeral, Cash was back in the studio recording music. She told me in the hospital, said, go to work. I said, what are you talking about? She said, don't worry about me, go to work. And, and at the funeral, I could almost hear her saying, go to work. Three days after the funeral, everybody said, you're crazy. But three days after the funeral, I was in the studio. Really? Yeah. And I stayed in the studio for two weeks. And uh, it was great therapy for me. And I think I accomplished more in that couple of weeks than most of the other year combined. Do you feel like you're in a monument of American music? Or do you just look at yourself as John Cash? Just as John Cash. Look, I appreciate all that, all the, all the praise and the glory. But uh, it doesn't change the way I feel about anything, really. I just do what I do and just hope the people enjoy it and just try to be myself in whatever I do. No. You believe and you have faith. I mean, does it make it easier to look at look ahead and, and say, well, my life may end, but it's been good. I'm not afraid. Oh, I expect my life to end pretty soon. You know, I'm 71 years old. No. And um, I have great faith, though. I have unshakable faith. I've never been angry with God. I've never been... Uh, I've never turned my back on God, so to speak. I never, uh, I never thought that God wasn't there. So he's my counselor, he's my wisdom. All the good things in my life come from him. Where do you think we go afterwards? Where do we go? Well, we all hope to go to heaven. Less than a month after that interview, on September 12th, 2003, Johnny Cash, the man in black, passed away from diabetes at the Baptist Hospital in Nashville. He was buried next to his wife at Hendersonville Memory Gardens. Their deaths were less than four months apart. Lord, I've never lived where churches grow. I've loved creation better as it stood. The day you finished it so long ago and looked upon your work and called it good. Others seemed to find you in the light that sifted down through tinted window panes. And yet I feel your presence here tonight in this dim, quiet starlight on the plains. That's part of the Cowboy's Prayer. Ringo Starr is one of the last remaining members from the iconic rock group, The Beatles. He made an obvious impact on the music scene throughout his life, but his sense of spirituality is also no secret. 
Many people often contemplate the question, what is God? It's looked at as one of the most complicated questions one could answer in life. Although Ringo is able to explain it in the most simple and profound way possible. Although that's just my opinion. Hear it in Ringo's words and decide if his definition is true to you. I'm going to ask you a very simple question, Ringo. What is God? Uh, God to me, my God in my life, God is love. Pure love. Love is an incredible power. Um, you know, if you give out love, the reaction to it is so great, even to like crazy violent people. If you give out love, they stop for a minute because everybody notices love when it's coming your way. You know, and you feel incredible when you give love back. I feel that, uh, you know, as you go through life, you, uh, you know, you make certain moves and it's, it's very hard, these moves, and you don't feel good about it. But if you're doing something with love, all of this behind you, all over the world, will support you. So that's how it is. That's how the world works. It's all the one God. The books I've read, it all says good and love. Vietnamese uh, monk, whose name I can never pronounce, but he's saying that, you know, just in your daily life to be doing things, and he says, you know, like when you get to the traffic, like it's no good getting crazy. Just love the red light. And then when it changes, drive on. And he says, and when you're angry, it's no good being angry at yourself because then you're twice as angry. <laughs> I, you know, I like to keep that in my life also. It's convoluted because there are a lot of religions that believe that their God is greater. Or oh, a lot of people. Yes, but that's people. This is not God. This is the you know, what the religion says and the people who, you know, are in that religion. You know, I am not religious. I'm trying my best on a daily basis to have a spiritual life. But I think, you know, everybody wants their religion to be, you know, universe-wide. And they're not. Like all the, the natives of long ago, most of them we've wiped out in the name of religion, uh, you know, let live. You know, the American Indians couldn't understand the concept of buying land. <laughs> what do you mean you want the land? It's for all of us, you know? And the world is for all of us. We are one. Now, I feel I had spiritual moments as a young kid. And, you know, I feel I had spiritual moments as a teenager, just seconds. There's things I remember of this emotion. And, you know, as you know, we went to India and Maharishi and we tried that and we looked at that, uh, you know, and since then, you know, we're, we're just like looking and searching and, and hoping and crying and laughing. Uh, you know, I heard one guy say, uh, Carl Jung, he was so great. He was asked, uh, do you still believe in God? And he said, no. He says, I know. I don't need to believe. I know. He's the only one I ever knew who said, I know. <laughs> How great is that? You know, people are frightened of the word God. You know what I mean? They don't, oh, God. I mean, well, you can't like just say God. Well, you can. You know, someone asked me once, well, what is your concept? And I went to go off into these 60s madness of energy and things like that. And I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know. God is love. Keep it simple. What do you think happens when you die? 
Personally, I believe I go somewhere. So you believe that your uh, spirit I, is separate from your body? I do. Do you believe And the you... spirit does not cause the madness, you know, and it's not the power-hungry situation that a lot of humans grow into. That's the human condition. God is love. Love is love. You know, and the more we put love in our life, that's all I ever want to say. There's more love on the planet. Although many people left the peace and love message in the 60s, Ringo held on to it strong. It's become his motto in life, and he spreads the message of peace and love any chance he gets. Peace and love. Some people yeah, from yeah. who were like who first ran into the peace and love message in the 1960s gave up on it. How did you hold on to the peace and the love, Ringo? It just became natural for for greeting peace and love, brother. You know, it's, uh, it it was embedded in the 60s. Of course, I didn't invent it, and. Um, and I love the 60s. I mean, what a change went on in everybody's life, uh, thanks to Timothy Leary, of course. But um, I, I don't know. It just then I was on tour. You know, I hadn't been out live for years. And it just became like, hey, peace and love, everybody. And it just sort of went from there. Then we have my birthday, uh, special, you know, 7th of July. And we have a peace and love moment at noon. And so I just use it any way I can because I truly believe in peace and love. In 1968, the Beatles traveled to India to take part in a transcendental meditation course with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. A quote from Wingo that sticks out to me is, At the end of the day, I can end up just totally wacky because I've made mountains out of molehills. With meditation, I can keep them as molehills. Over 40 years ago, uh, we ended up in Rishikesh. And that's where we met. Well, it wasn't where we met. It's where we hung out with Maharishi. We'd met him a few months before in Wales. And since then, sometimes uh, a lot and sometimes a little, I have meditated. And, uh, you know, it's a, a gift he gave me. Um, was my mantra that something I could use and something no one could take away. So it's one of the few things I was ever given that uh, means that much to me. Having someone as accomplished as Ringo, it's strange to think of who his role models would be. Although it seems clear to me that he looks up to Maharishi. It's no surprise that he's a supporter of the David Lynch Foundation and its efforts to fund the teaching of meditation in schools. When I first met him, I was in a room because it was in a a university, so we're like in dorm, you know, in a dormitory <laughs> we're all living. And uh, it was, it's one of those mind altering moments of your life because the man was so full of joy, you know, and happiness and it just blew me away. You know, um, on my best day, I never felt like he looked. Uh, it was so far out, he was so, I was just thought, I want some of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was a, the best thing that could happen. Where were you before that? What were you? Well, I never meditated in my life. But even just your head, your no, my head was a bit in those last sort of sixty-six, no, sixty-seven. Uh, mainly sixty-seven was a bit confused. <laughs> uh, a lot of things were going on, and anyway, he was one of the people who helped me out of that. Just. Not that he said, here, I'm helping you out. He 
was helping everybody, but he seriously helped me. Well, the sense of David in his work is brilliant. I mean, he's doing a lot more than I am, and you, and, you know, the foundation. I mean, that, that's what it's working for. Uh, you know, I mean, the big one for me, of course, is the bringing uh, meditation into schools. And, you know, and he was telling me that, you know, they know from the heads of schools that the violence has gone down. How far out is that? You know? Particularly when kids are taking guns into school. I know. Well, you know, it's in like hard schools. It mainly goes in. That is incredible. You have to support him for that. Sir Paul McCartney is considered one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. He's famously regarded as one of the Beatles' primary songwriters. And not only did the Beatles have a profound impact on the sound of the 60s, but their cultural influence was undeniable. From rock pioneers to counterculture enthusiasts, it makes me wonder what Paul's thoughts are when it comes to the meaning of the Beatles. But what do you think is the lasting meaning of the Beatles if there's if there's a meaning to be taken from this? All you need is love. You know, after the 60s, that was kind of looked on as a bit sort of stupid. You know, hey, all you need is love, dude. You know, well, you need more. You know, we need weapons and we need defense or whatever, you know, which is also true. But it's, it's coming back. It keeps rolling back this idea that what these people on this planet need is love, you know. I always say to people, you know, we could have we had a really uh, satanic message. And with the power we had, boy, you know, we could have made quite a difference the other way. But we always chose not to do that. Nobody was remotely interested in that. We had this idea that all you need is love. Do it. In the and end, I love. still believe it. I think the idea gets knocked every so often because, you know, it's a violent world and that you do need other things. But I still think that's the, uh, that's the message. That being said, all you need is love seems contradictory to what happened after Michael Jackson bought the rights to their catalog. Michael Jackson has the rights now mm. to all the Beatles stuff. How much did it bother you when uh, Revolution was used to sell Nike sneakers and things like that? Heaps. With the Beatles, we had all those offers. You know, anybody who publishes songs, you get those offers. Hey, can we use this commercial? We had the offers from the big soft drinks companies. You know who I'm talking about. Big, huge offers to use a Beatles song, to use this and that. But we always turned them down because we believed it would devalue the whole thing. We'd be seen to be selling out which we were keen not to do. You know, we kind of felt that our fans believed in us and that we owed them some sort of integrity. We, we, we talked to them, we knew what they thought of us, you know. So something like Revolution, you know, it meant more than a pair of sneakers. But uh, anyone who knows music publishing, there's a lot of pressure on you to do that because it's a big heap of cash comes in suddenly and, you know, it's very hard to resist for anyone. But I, I think we shouldn't do that. I think it's more sensible to leave the kind of legend intact. And I think, they'll, I think they'll do great, the songs. I think they'll continue to do great. And I think to uh, commercialize them like that, um, I think it spoils them. And having taken that decision with the Beatles, it's now out of our hands, really. We, we don't have the authority anymore yeah. to do that because it's now been sold. But I, I do still think it's a pity. But personally, I also think, as I say, it's not, it doesn't make commercial sense. I think you weaken, 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 you end up with a weak catalogue of songs that are thought of as sneakers, automobiles, Snickers bars, yeah. and stuff, you know. If you are someone in as bright of a spotlight as Paul McCartney, you may look to the public for approval. Just like Paul's unique view on the commercialization of his songs, though. 
His thoughts on public approval are actually quite the opposite to what you may expect. The only approval I really look for is my own, because it's the only way to do it. I've tried it every which way, you know, and it really is the only thing that counts. Is if you like it, then you can give it to the world, and, and at least when the critics say it's a bunch of rubbish, well, I like it. And as long as you're convinced, you do like it. Um, that's the main thing. Similarly, the world can see Paul however they like, but Paul's own outlook on himself is the pure vision that shapes the core of his being. You know, the thing is,、um, I am still that little kid that grew up in Liverpool. Okay, I got really famous, but in here, I'm still that little kid. So、um, I'm amazed at like the audience reaction and stuff, and because it's like I still don't believe it. <laughs> you know,、um, and the way I think, just like when I'm at home,、yes. I'm just slobbing out watching television. Like any, like anyone. So,、um, so it's kind of him and me. Me is me that, that was always in this、right. body, and the body's just grown up. Sure, the guy、um, behind the eyeballs. Yeah,、uh, and then him is that famous guy. Wow, he's very famous. Despite Paul's insistence that he is like anyone, many people look up to Paul and the Beatles. But what kind of people do the Beatles look up to? One of them was Maharishi Mahayogi, who was the person who introduced them to meditation and the reason for their trip to Rishikesh in 1968. It was actually George Harrison's wife, Patty, who had heard that Maharishi was coming to town, and <clears throat> she said we should all go. It was one of those things, and I was personally not in a good good place. I think you know, just overdoing it in the '60s. So I was just not very sort of centered, and I was looking for something. I think we all were. So we heard that Maharishi was going to have a meeting and give a lecture, and we all went along to listen. It was、um, very interesting. It was very calming, and it seemed like something that. Was worth trying. He put it very well. He made it seem simple. He made it seem very attractive. And so I think we were all just sold. So what happened then? We went to Bangor in Wales, and we attended a, a little seminar there. And then eventually we went out to Rishikesh with him, which、right. was more sustained. It was. It was great. It was.、Um, Very straightforward, very simple. Wake up, you would then go for breakfast in the morning, a light breakfast. You just socialise a bit with the other members and、uh, just get to know each other. And then you would go back for your morning meditation. You go back to your room. We had little chalets, kind of thing.、Mm-hmm. Each of us had little rooms,、mm-hmm. which were very simple but adequate. And you would just sit and you would meditate. Then it was lunch, and, you, and you'd, again you'd socialise and chat and stuff. And then you'd meditate in the afternoons. Sometimes Maharishi would have a meeting every so often with you,、um, and you could talk to him about your experiences, and he would help guide you.、Mm-hmm. And then in the evening there was a kind of question and answer session,、mm-hmm. which was slightly more formal. That was in a hall. 
and we would all just be in there, all the uh, all the students, and Maharishi would come on and talk, and then he would take questions. He would just listen mm -hmm. uh, about people's experiences, and that was kind of that was the sort of thing that happened each day. But yeah, there were some very blissful moments. I remember one in particular when I'd been meditating for a little while, and I got to a really good place, and I remember the feeling was that I was a feather. I felt like I actually was a feather floating over a hot air pipe. And I was just, it was a very nice feeling. And I remember that vividly. Uh -huh. And I reported that to Maharishi and he giggled, yes, this is good. <laughs> Meditation is something that comes from nothing. Much like writing a song. Here, Paul explains his take on writing music. Yeah, uh, if you think, oh, I'll write a song, which, you know, if I've got some time and I'm just sitting around, <clears throat> I'm fed up with watching telly, I think, oh, I could do. So I get my guitar, and I'm very conscious of the fact there's, there's nothing there. I've got, I haven't got any idea what I'm going to do. It's a black hole. But then I start picking away and get a little bit of an idea, go, oh, that's nice. And you follow that trail, and at the end of maybe two or three hours, um, you've suddenly got this thing, you've got this song. So now instead of a black hole, you can now go and play this thing to people. You can now present this little discovery. Look what I just done. And it's a great thing to be able to do. It's, it's kind of magical. And at 80 years old, he's still writing songs today. To most people, this may seem like an abundance of hard work, although Paul has a completely different outlook. Yeah, I, I say to people when they say you work hard, I say, well, we don't work music, we play it. And it, even though it might sound a bit glib, it is true. To me, it's, it would be a hobby if I didn't do it professionally. Uh, it's just something I love. It's because, you, you know, you're creating this thing out of a black hole and it's very satisfying. So I love to do that. So I just keep on and on. I mean, I've always got a song on the go. I've got a few on the go at the moment, you know, um, just because I like the whole puzzle of, let's try and make this song work. Is it interesting enough? Does it say it in a good enough way? Maybe I should change that line. It's an ongoing, interesting thing for me. Uh, and then when you feel you've got it right, it's a, okay, that'll do. And it's very satisfying. I can't see myself ever stopping. So yeah, there's a lot of work or a lot of play. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 